Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you need additional help on how to do that, we have a Next Steps page on our website that you can check out. Also, if you haven't been able to attend a service at any one of our campuses recently and participate in the time of giving, you can give anytime you want online by visiting our Give page or by texting to give. We hope that God speaks to you in this sermon. Take care. These are questions that you asked us to answer. We compiled the results from a survey we sent out to over 10,000 people. There are a lot of people who, who don't necessarily feel the permission to really struggle with these things and wonder out loud about these things here in church. Let's be gracious as we enter into these topics. Let's be aware of differences. Let's be open to what God might want to teach us. And let's approach each of these weeks with our eyes wide open. We say, I believe. I believe that Christ's death was for me. I believe his resurrection is my resurrection. I believe he paid for my sin. That's actually my hope and prayer for all of us today. That we would experience the Jesus that can and will radically change our lives. Hey, good morning and welcome to church, everyone. How are we doing today? Oh, so nice to see you guys. Uh, my name is Billy Reeder, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Cornerstone Fellowship. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us. As uh, Becky said, we are uh, in week two of a series we began last week where we're answering a bunch of questions that are on the hearts and minds of people. You know, inquiring minds want to know. And this is important stuff, right? It's questions about theology, about daily life, about social issues, and how these all intertwine, and then things that like confuse us, or things that we struggle with with respect to the Christian faith. Like we want to know how to work through this stuff so that we can blast forward, which is why we're doing this series. Now I want to um, just actually make a quick announcement, real quick, uh, to help us work through uh, this series. We are launching a new content um, uh, source of content, really, for to help supplement the series on YouTube. So there's a website called YouTube. I've never heard of it. Maybe you have. And you can get on there and watch stuff. You can get to our Cornerstone Fellowship page and then subscribe. And we're, we're kicking off this thing this week called Beyond Sunday, which is our executive pastor, Chris Stockhouse, is going to be sitting down with each of the weekend teachers over the next five weeks. And we're going to talk about stuff that we didn't necessarily get to during our time for the messages. So when we study, um, we have just mounds and heaps of content. I, I call that my bullpen. Okay, it's my bullpen content, and, um, and so then we're going to get to the bullpen. By the way, the bullpen, uh, baseball, I guess, what, did the Dodgers make it into the World Series? Does that happen? Okay, who's a Dodger fan? Who's a Dodger fan? Identify yourself. Okay, ushers, let's escort all these people out. They can go sit in the courtyard. That's fine. Um, no, so, um, so we are going to look at uh, material that we've developed, and we're going to go over some of this uh, stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's an informal setting, so you can check that out on YouTube beyond Sunday. All right, let's get to our topic. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, to consider the scriptures. It is actually a book that is filled with questions. This kind of has the rep of being the book of the answer book. You go, you go here for answers, and yet we read in Scripture from cover to cover, there's over 3,300 questions recorded. That's one question for roughly every 10 verses, or 9.4 if you want me to be exact. 
Sometimes it's people asking things of one another, so there's the horizontal questions, and then it's the vertical. It's, uh, we're, we're gonna ask God some stuff, and then God's gonna ask us some stuff. There's just questions flying around in every direction. Do you, do you know what the very first question in the Bible is? Okay, think back. It is asked by Satan in the Garden of Eden. He says, hey, um, did God really say not to eat of the tree? Yeah, so that, that's, that's, uh, that's where it all started right there. But then, you know what the second question is? It's God. God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? And from that point, boom, it's off to the races. When we see, when we're conscious of this, right, we see this time and time again. It's a major feature. Now, the one in the Bible who seemed to love the questions that people ask him the most is, of course, Jesus. Uh, Jesus never turned away anyone who asked him a question. He never got mad or frustrated. In fact, there was an interesting little uh, interchange between Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter five, and they ask him, they go to him, and they're like, hey, we do not understand what you are teaching here. Would you please explain to us what you're saying? And he doesn't get angry. In fact, basically, you kind of get the feel that he high fives them. He's commending them for bringing their concerns and their inquisitiveness to him. So admittedly, though, there are times when Jesus answers a question with a question. Somebody asks him something and then he fires back, you know, and it's kind of to test. It's a little bit like if the, the asker's heart isn't right. And uh, so we see that happening, but he's really wanting to keep Q&A mode going because it's so important to God. So he summarizes his, his sort of view on this in this very famous classic verse. He says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you for whoever asks receives. That's Matthew 7, 7 through 8. So clearly God is not against someone who would ask questions. And again, sometimes I think church people um, or people have a view of church people that we, we like, you know, push away people who ask questions because, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't ever, you know, ask anything of God. You know, that's showing doubt. That's showing unbelief. And that's not what we see in Scripture. And I believe the reason that God loves questions so much is because this is a fundamental component of what having a healthy relationship looks like. What's the first thing you do when you meet somebody new? You've never met them before. You ask them the most basic of questions. Hello, how much money do you make a year? <laughs> now, you don't ask that, that's a terrible question. What do you do? You ask, hello, what is your name? What is your name? and you begin to learn who that person is and discover uh, all about them from their name. That's actually what Moses did when he met God for the first time at the burning bush in Exodus 3.13. He simply asks, God, what is your name? What should we call you? And this begins this beautiful personal relationship between Moses and God that lasts a lifetime that so many exciting things took place. So we see this culture of question asking and answering. You know, even when you know somebody really well, what do you do? You ask them questions to show that you care about them. You wanna stay current with them. Hey, what's going on these days? Hey, I'm just checking in, what's happening? How was your week? How are the kids? How's the job? You know, how are your sports teams doing? Did the, did the, did the Warriors win the other night? You're just asking them important stuff that you wanna know about them. Now, when it comes to our spiritual lives, this, of course, is totally applicable. And here's why asking questions is so important. It's a powerful way that we can grow spiritually. It's a, it's a, it's a catalyst to spiritual growth. It propels us into growing in ways 
had we not asked the question, we wouldn't be growing. We grow in understanding. We grow in wisdom. We grow in spiritual maturity. We grow in closeness to Jesus as we wrestle through our curiosities or the things that frustrate and bother us. You know, there's, there's times when we are spiritually frustrated. Those are the times when you ask the best questions. Those are not the times to pull away from God. Those are the times to lean into God and you just ask, well, why is this happening? Why am I reading this? What is going on here, God? And we can mature as we sit with Jesus and peer into God's word. I actually don't think, personally, I don't think it's possible for an individual to fully mature in their relationship with Jesus without engaging in this process at some level. And so that's the goal of this series, really. The heart behind it is that each of us, as we ask and we wrestle and we try to answer and we seek the heart of God and we look at it through the lens of scripture, that this process would help us grow closer to Jesus, that we would, in fact, see uh, this truth about growing spiritually is um, a pathway to that, is via this way. So we're gonna get to it now. Uh, that's the preliminaries. Let's talk about the most asked question from the surveys. Again, I think Ingold said there's 10,000 surveys went out, more than 10,000. This was the number one in frequency, the asked question that you guys wanted to know. How do I know the Bible is true? So we looked at this last week, right? Uh, we looked at several proofs. This was Matt Warner. So Matt, guys, stepped in at the, in the ninth inning. He just came in. Uh, I was in the hospital. I had a, you know, a nasty infection that popped a fever. And so I spent uh, one of the most memorable nights of my life in an ER in Antioch. And so uh, Matt came in. Didn't Matt do a great job? That's a, that's a tough thing to do. You know, he's so good. And Matt gave us several proofs that point to the Bible's reliability and the Bible's trustworthiness in our lives. He talked about the manuscript evidence that we have. We can trace these words that we're reading in our modern Bibles through time via the manuscript evidence so close to when they were originally written and see that there really is a high degree of, of unity from what the authors originally wrote. Almost 99.9%, uh, almost no variance. We talked about the eyewitness accounts and then we also looked at the, biblic, the biblical, uh, uh, the archeological record that that helps confirm scientifically what we're reading. So many proofs more that we could cover, but the bottom line we learned from Matt is that this book is a miracle from God that is given to us and we can 100% trust it. It's 100% it's authoritative. And man, I can build my life on what this book says. This can bear the weight of my life, your life, our lives as a church family. We are going to search the pages of this and we're, gonna, and we're just gonna do what God says he tells us in this book to do. That's our belief here at Cornerstone Fellowship. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. That's the trajectory. We're on that path together. All right, today I wanna to address the same question but from a different POV and look at it from this vantage point. I wanna study and kind of play with this word true right here. I wanna look at this, dig into this. And how do I know the Bible is true? Let's look at true, truth. Uh, let me do this by two things. Let me, let me split this apart and let's ask a couple more questions and we'll do it this way. Is the Bible true? Is the Bible factual? In other words, is there a difference in something being truthful and in something being factual? Is there a difference there? 
Certainly, if you look at the technical definitions of these two words, there's a lot of overlap, right? There's a high degree of synchronicity. These are synonyms. But also, if you look at the definitions, you see that there's enough variance in those definitions that it leaves something that can be true as true can be, and also something cannot be simultaneously factual. Did everybody follow me, or did I lose you? Okay, you got to lock in, yo. All right, lock in. Stop goofing around on your phones. All right, and let's get into this. Something can be true as true can be and simultaneously not be factual. Um, let me give you an example. Jesus taught us the, the prodigal sons. Taught us about the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. I mean, this is an incredible piece of scripture, an incredible teaching of Jesus. But Jesus, okay, he does not start off by saying, let me tell you about a family that I met a couple of months ago. Boy, what a, what a family, right? The younger brother, he just goes off the deep end. He just chucks all of his morals, his background, men, and, and, and he, he has the audacity. What does he do? He goes to his father who's alive and he asks for his part of the inheritance. His dad hadn't even croaked yet. Can you imagine the audacity, the insult? That's, that's I mean, that's terrible. Well, he goes off the deep end. He runs away from God. And then the other brother, the older brother, does the opposite. He runs into, you know, religious rules and regulations and self-righteousness. And they're going like this in opposite directions. And then the dad's there. So, so, so that's not how Jesus transmitted the story to us. Instead, he gives us the story of the prodigal son in the form of a parable. So it's about a fictional family and again, this contains some of the most powerful truth in all of scripture, right? Here's the bottom line of this parable, that no matter how bad we mess up, me, you, our friends, our kids, no matter how much bad we goof up, how much we sin, we are never beyond the reach of the Father's redemption and forgiveness. How about that for just a life-shattering, life-altering truism? I mean, this is incredible. You cannot run, outrun God's arm of love. You cannot go so far that God, you know, doesn't have the resources to forgive you and pull you back into the family. This is an amazing thing. In fact, many of our lives are echoes of this story. Who's with me? Raise your hand. Are you a prodigal? Son or daughter? Right here. Right here. There's a few of us, like a few, what, almost a thousand of us who relate to this. So here we have a parable. The prodigal son is true as true can be, but the truth that is transmitted via this is from a story that's not factual. Hey, do you follow this? Do you? Okay, thank you. Thus, biblical truth can be true and also not connected to a historical event that happened in human time and space. Now, what frustrates and causes so many people a lot of confusion is you pick up this Bible, it's a big book, there's a lot in here, and you just pick it up and you start reading it, and oftentimes you're like, I, I, I don't know what I'm reading. What is this? What is this material? Um, I'm, in, I, I'm in Jeremiah chapter 7. Is this, what is this? Is this historical material? Is this you know, prophetic? Is this a vision? Is, do I take this as literal? Do I not take this as literal? And people get confused and frustrated by that. And so it kind of tends to put some distance between us and God's word. And then on top of that, we live in a culture, this postmodern, post-Christian culture, that basically the narrative directed towards Christians is everything in this book isn't true. None of it happened. It's a fairy tale and it's all made up stories. And if you actually believe in any part of this in a literal sense, you're a dimwit. 
Oh, and truth, by the way, so it goes, is also relative. And so you guys really need to get on the bus because you're missing the bus. And that's a cultural pressure that we feel, especially from our skeptics. And then you add the confusion that I just talked about, and it really does. It does make the Bible feel like it just, it's kind of unreachable. You don't feel very connected to it because there's all these barriers. And that gets frustrating. Is anybody experiencing anything like this in your life ever? I, I find this to be so true. I know I have. So I wanna talk about the rest of our time together a way forward, a way through this, so that we can get kind of back to this and wrap our arms around it and run with it. It's really some basic principles of how to interpret the scripture. Um, and I wanna just kind of break that down and start off by saying this, this, uh, this slide sort of sums it up. The Bible writers want us to take them as they intended, so they generally tell us what their intentions are. So when the Bible writers want us to take them literally, they usually tell us, hey, you are reading historical events in human time and space, so please take them literally. This is fact, this is factual material. They'll say, hey guys, and they'll tell us that. If they don't want us to take their words literally, they'll tell us what you're reading now is poetry, what you're reading now is parable, or you're reading apocalyptic vision. They'll tell us that. Now, how they tell us that, we call this, um, we call this sort of in technical language, uh, biblical genres. All right, the word genre simply means a type or category of literature. And there are a number of genres that are found in our Bibles. Here's a list of a few of them. There's historical narrative, as I said. There's poetry, there's prophecy. There's the genre of letters or epistles. These are actual letters from like Paul to a church. There's apocalyptic uh, literature. You're gonna read a vision of heaven and dragons floating around differently than you're gonna read historical narrative, are you not? Also, there's this one called invective. This is an interesting genre of scripture. This comes up when you see, like for example, David, he's writing a psalm that's really raw. And he says things like, God, kill all your enemies, like kill them dead. Um, break their teeth out so that their dental records wouldn't even be able to identify their dead, miserable bodies. Have you seen some of this in the scripture? Why are you laughing? That's a terrible thing to laugh at. No, I'm just embarrassing someone. So, so we read an invective differently than we read. God is allowing, through his inspired process, he's allowing the gamut of human emotions to pop up in his holy word. It's fascinating stuff. But we gotta know what we're reading. It's like, well, God, he likes that? He wants that? No, he's allowing David to emote. That's an invective. So there's all these different types of, of genres of scripture. This isn't an exhaustive list. And this is important because the type of writing lets us know how we take what it is saying. You're not gonna wanna read prophecy through the lens of history and vice versa, as I said. So when we know genre, we know what to do with it. Let, let, me just, let, let me give you a really easy example of what I mean here. Okay, how should we interpret this verse? God will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. Is this verse saying that God is a chicken? <laughs> so if you do it long enough, it gets awkward, and then it's kind of funny at some point. 
Now this verse is not saying that God is a chicken. The verse is saying that God will protect us from harm, much like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. So it's giving us truth and it's using this imagery so that we can understand the heart of God for us. There are times though, this is very clear. This is very clear, correct? This is very clear. There are times though when it's not so clear, it's not so easy to determine what we're reading. There's passages, quite frankly, that even when we analyze them from a genre lens, we're just like, oh my, I don't really know. I'm not sure what this is. And so we scratch our heads. Um, Well, somebody, I'm sure you have, well, what are those? What are some of those? Give me some examples. I'm glad you asked. Let me give you some that are on my list of ones where I believe there's confusing or there's a multiplicity of genres. There's Genesis chapters one through 11. There's the book of Job. And then there's the book of Jonah. All right, these are representative of the kinds of things I'm talking about. So in Genesis, obviously, 1 through 11, this is just loaded with with content. It's about the the origins of the universe, cosmology. You've got human origins. You've got um, Noah and the flood, and you've got original sin. You've got all of this huge range of topics. But one thing that we wrestle with, Genesis 1 through 11, and, and it clicks into history right about when we start seeing, clearly it clicks into history right when we see Abraham. Abraham's family, and then we just go, okay, boom, um, this is historical narrative now. But these texts before that signal both history and components of Hebrew poetry. And they're intertwined together in these passages. Now, I covered this um, specifically for Genesis 1 through 3 in our last You Asked For It series. I'm, I'm just going to direct you to our website. Go check out sermon number 5. I believe that's one the one I did uh, for more, a more rounded treatment on this. I'm gonna, I, I actually dive into some of this specifically. But for now, this is on the list of, of those places in the Bible where I see multiple genres being given to us. So Job is next. The question is, will we be able to shake Job's hand in heaven? In other words, was he a real dude who lived and then we're going to meet him? So, so yes, but maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure we can be sure because there are elements in the text to suggest that what we're reading perhaps is in fact an epic lyrical poem meant to convey some incredibly powerful truth about how to find God in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering. So did Job really lose all of his kids? He lost all of his children. And then at the end, he gets remarried and has like other kids. Did Job lose his health? Did he lose his farm? Did his wife walk away from him? Hey, curse God and die, Job. That was like, you know, she's out. And did his friends, his friends, you always have to air quote Job's friends. Do this. Because are they really friends? Yeah, you know, I'm like, if I had friends like that, you know, um, boy, uh, I don't want any friends ever. So nobody ever talked to me, right? Because his buddies, all they do is they basically say for many, many chapters, hey, Job, fess up to the secret sin that's in your life because God would not be allowing you to go through this living hell unless you were really kind of behind the curtain, a really rotten guy. 
And Job's like, no, you, I'm telling you, the punishment does not fit the crime here. I'm actually, a, I'm not perfect, but I don't deserve this. I'm not doing a bunch of weird, bad stuff that you're not seeing. And so he's pushing them off and they're like, no, it's not possible because they're coming from this formulaic approach. That's what this entire book is about, right? Did all that really happen? Or is it more of this, again, poem with these like acts, if you will. You've got the first act possibly where it's God and Satan. And then the, the middle act is this long discussion between Job and his friends. And then you have the third act, which is a discussion between God and Job. And where God just comes down and says, let me break it down. And let me just show you just a little bit of who I am. And then he just says, you know, just in very stark terms who he is. And he never answers any of Job's questions. Oh, it's, a, it's amazing work, right? But do we know that these things really took place? There's some geographical details. There's some tidbits of context. But usually the Bible gives us a lot more details when it's telling us this is narrative history. And so we have to be true to the text and how it's given us. And we kind of wrestle with that. So there's kind of a spectrum of where believers land on Job. Let's talk about Jonah. Let's talk about... Jonah, and when you talk about Jonah, you also are talking also about the story of the prodigal, uh, the, the Old Testament version. Here's a guy who's both brothers in one person. He spends the bulk of the time at the beginning as the younger brother. He's running away from God. He's rebelling against God. He's getting as far away from God as he possibly can until he ends up in the belly of a fish who eats him, and he spends a weekend in a fish's gut, and then the fish gets tired of him and pukes him up on a beach. Just barfs him up. Yeah, hey, how was your weekend? Well, I've had better weekends. <laughs> and he's covered in barf and in puke and in whale stomach acid or fish stomach acid. And then he spends the rest of the story, I know this is vivid, huh? Let's talk more about barf. All right, here's my theology of puke. Number one, um, he spends the rest of the time being the older brother. He leans into self-righteousness and he's angry at God because God wants to, him to preach a message of forgiveness and repentance to a group, the Assyrian people, that were completely horrific towards Israel. And he doesn't like that at all. And so he's leaning into the rule book. And at one point, he just sits down on the top of this hill and he's just like, I ain't doing it. Unless, God, you let me pronounce judgment on these fools, I ain't saying a word. He totally older brothers that thing. There is so much we can learn from Jonah. It is ridiculous. But a lot of us get hung up on the fish part. Because it seems like it's, eh, you know, that seems kind of silly. You know, for example, Jonah, you know what Jonah did? Is he put national pride ahead of obedience to God. He so took up the cause of Israel that he could not see how God wanted to extend mercy and forgiveness to another people group because he was blinded by national pride. Okay. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. But did it really happen? Or is it an extended parable? Is it the OG prodigal son. We're not sure. It has, it has elements of both. And so we're just like, okay, this is interesting. 
The analysis textually is interesting, but we have to wrestle with the fact that we have conflicting signals. Now, this is a short list. This is a short list for me. I have a longer list. And this is the list I'm going to show you in a second. This is long, and it's not even exhaustive. This is an example of the things that, in my understanding of Scripture, did really happen in history. So you have this list. You have the creation of the cosmos. That actually happened. The burning bush we talked about. The Red Sea was divided by the power of God. When Moses put a staff in the water, water goes like this, dry land. It says that the Israelites walked through, not on muddy seabed, but on dry land. So, man, that, that wind, like, dried that thing out. They had a nice path, right? That literally happened. That's literal history. Manna sent daily to feed the Israelites and on and on. The, the, the Jordan River divided by Joshua, another body of water divided later. The walls of Jericho did, did come tumbling down, right? Next slide. You got more stuff. Just, again, Samson's strength, the widow's meal and oil. Uh, Elijah, right, um, confronting the prophets, the prophets of Baal, right? And there's 450 of them. And, and Elijah just gets in their grill. And he's like, if God is God, then serve God. If Baal is God, then serve Baal. Why do you hesitate between two opinions? We're going to have an MMA throwdown right here and decide this once and for all. And so they do. They have two piles of sacrifices. And the 450 prophets of Baal are, are screaming and hollering to their gods all day long. And the gods are silent. And then one quick short prayer from Elijah. Fire comes like, down from heaven and consumes the bull, consumes the wood, brings the stones down to ash. And Elijah's just sitting there going, uh-huh, that's right. Whose God is real? That really happened. You can go to the place where that happened in Israel. All these sorts of things were history. Go to the New Testament, the virgin birth. Water turned into wine at Cana. Lazarus was raised. Swine suicide, that really happened. Jesus walks on water. The transfiguration, and then the resurrection of Jesus. These are incredible things that happened as the Bible writers tell us. So the question is, why are, let's put up the next slide. Why do you have two lists? Why do you have this little list and then you have this long list, again, representative? Why can't you just slide this over here? Why can't we just do that? What's the big deal? Well, I'll tell you why it's not. I'll tell you why we have two lists, why it's not. It's not because we don't think that God has enough miracle power to make these things happen. And the reason is because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, which is the ultimate miracle of all miracles. If you believe in this, that is, if you believe in the ability of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who was sent to earth and lived a perfect life, and then somehow, someway, cosmically bore the weight of all of the human sin, uh, past, present, and future, on his body, his broken body, as he was bleeding out, as he was nailed to a cross, and then he died, and then he was put in a tomb and sealed there, and then, three days later, when that stone was rolled away, that grave was empty, empty forever, and what we really have now is this victorious risen king in infinite glory, infinite power and beauty and forgiveness. If we believe in that monumentally impossible miracle, then these other things are really nothing to God. If you can get to the moon, you can get to, Scott, you can get to Stockton. Although I'm not sure why you'd want to go to Stockton. So this list is here, not because being in the belly of a fish for three days is too ridiculous, is too incredulous. No, it's just simply here because we take our Bible study so seriously. I mean, we really dig in. And when we take this analysis, the analysis gives us 
multiple genres with some of these and it just causes us to back away and go, okay, all right, I'm not really sure here. We have some literary signals that, uh, well, there's a multiplicity of them. So I'm, I'll give you an analogy, or nerd, or I'll nerd out for just a second. This is a, a DNA helix. So this is a representative of a DNA strand and you have, in a DNA helix, you have two strands of information that are connected by this genetic data. And to me, this is a picture of some of these texts. You have, like say, a, a strand of history and you have a, st a strand of poetry and that's a little bit like some of the passages that we're talking about. And so we acknowledge that, we notice that, we mark that down and we wrestle with that, we help each other. It creates a spectrum of belief. But at the end of the day, this DNA strand is life. God's word is life. God's word is the building block of all of our life. And so we're good. We're good with that. So there's, there's a couple of impl implications to this teaching. Uh, and I think it's worth looking at that's gonna help us. I wanna give you two implications. The first one is this, is when you, when you understand this and when you read your Bible very seriously, you begin to have to develop um, a rubric in your mind and your heart to understand the essential versus the non-essential. Now this is all the inspired word of God. And so we not, we're not gonna cast any of it aside. But what I mean here is that there are some things that are less central, that are less core, to living out our daily lives as Christians. So whether you believe Job was a real person in human history or not, or whether, for example, you believe in a literal six-day creation account or you don't, these types of things should never divide us as believers. They are non-essential to our daily lives. They have no bearing on the central dynamic of the entire Bible, which is to say we are now pointed towards Christ, we're in Christ, and we serve the risen victor over sin and death. So when it's a non-essential, we give each other a lot of latitude. You guys following me on this? Now, when it's essential, though, we got to agree. We got to hold, hold on to that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the human event in time and history and space, completely essential that we're bought into that. That's history. What he, what he accomplished when he, when he walked out of the grave and he proved himself to be who he is, the king of the universe, that's absolutely necessary. And we've got 100% agree and hold fast to that. And we must be unified around the essentials. And so as a church family, we, we follow this code. The code is this, to never let a non-essential become an essential, and then flip that, never let an essential become a non-essential. That's the first implication. This is how we live our lives. The second one is, and it's rather a fun one for me, is that there is enough in our Bibles to keep us busy studying it for an entire lifetime, and we're never gonna get bored. It takes an entire lifetime to learn what scripture says. If you've never read scripture and you're here for the very first time, wow, what a great entry sermon for you. <laughs> but if that's you, let me assure you, this is an awesome way to spend your life, to digging into what God says here and understanding God's plan for your life and what he did and accomplished for us on, our, on his, what we couldn't do he did on our behalf. And when I say the word learn here, what I really mean is learning is doing. 
I mean, we can just store up knowledge and not have it make any really effect on our life at all. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm talking about living this thing out, doing what it says, obeying it, not just with a thought or an intention or what a nice aspirational thing and boy, that doesn't really apply to me, but no, 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 like literally taking this serious with, with both belief and action. That's the second implication. There's enough in this book to keep us engaged and locked in for however many days each of us have. And so I just leave you with this thought is that I just, I, I just gotta tell you, I love, I love the Bible. I just love, I love God's word. I love it so much. When I was younger, I used to sleep with it under my pillow. So that way when I woke up, it would be the very first thing that I grabbed and before my attention could be pulled off anywhere else, I would at least read a little bit to start my day. Also when I was younger, um, I used to carry a big Bible, a big study Bible around and I would put it in my backpack and you, you really can't hide that. You kind of out yourself because you have what clearly is a Bible which, by the way, if you're on a plane, I've found, and you don't want anybody to sit next to you, you get on a seat and you just put this right there on the tray. And man, people avoid that. It's so awesome. Let's just spread out. I mean, well, today, we, a lot of us, we carry our Bibles in a different way now. You know, don't we? We have them in our phones or our electronic devices. So it's a little more clandestine. Uh, when you're at work or you're, you know, maybe in a place where um, isn't necessarily the most, it sends a wrong signal if you were to be in your word. We can, um, we can, we can maybe kind of fly under the radar a little bit. But sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I just read, I sit down and I'm going to read a bunch. I'm going to study a bunch. But I just get through one line and I am completely stopped in my tracks as I pour out in prayer my heart of forgiveness and, and, and just, God, I need you because what I'm reading has completely convicted me of my pride, my arrogance, and my self-sufficiency. I can't go any further because I hit the mirror of God's word and it just shows me who I am and it's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture and I'm like, God, oh, I need you right now. I'm not going any further until I get right with you. It's a little bit like when you go to a hotel and at the, in the bathroom there's a mirror and then a lot of them have like another little tiny mirror that's a magnification mirror. And when you look, you're like, oh wow, I look pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm looking sharp. And then you look down and the mirror magnifies your face and it's like the surface of the moon. There's like pop marks and craters and you're like, oh, I'm so ugly. You just wanna like run away, right? That's, that's just me, huh? Okay. Well, I mean, that's the Bible. It's a mirror that's going to show you what you really look like. Oh, it's so convicting. But it also tells you the other side of that, which is how God makes you beautiful in Jesus. And when I read that part of the Bible, I am immediately filled with hope. I'm immediately filled with this sense of, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Because who I was is not who I am, and who I am is not who I'm going to be. Why? Because this Bible tells me that. And so the wonderful gems and treasures of 
His promises are found in these pages. I'm also inspired to serve Jesus wholeheartedly when I read the exploits of the men and women of faith and what they did and how they put themselves out there for God. And when I see the early church expanding and exploding as a pastor, I'm like, may my life be just, just as a tiny bit as fruitful and as effective as these leaders. So it's just like, I want to just give Jesus even more as I'm inspired and encouraged to just lay it all out on the field. Lay it all out. Don't hold anything back. For my church, for my people, for my city. Oh, may God use this. And it starts here as the Holy Spirit illuminates its truth in my heart. I'm continually fascinated by what I read. I mean, there's history and wars and empires and leadership. There's geography, nerdy stuff like geography and like measurements and how much is a cubic? Is that 18 inches? Is that 12 inches? And then you do the math and you're like, oh, an hour later, right? That's just me. There's culture, there's people, there's romance, there's betrayal, there's intrigue. I'm 29 years into reading the Bible and I feel like I'm just getting started. It's not boring when you spend your whole life discovering what God has said in the Bible. And I just go, where would I be, God, without your holy word? Where in the world would I be? I would be lost. Because with this word, you guide me, you shepherd me, and you love me. So friends, is it true, the Bible? Is it true? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? I believe the evidence clearly shows that it is. I believe I can build my life and my family, my marriage, my future on what God says here. I can know that this book will never lie to me. It's never going to lie to you. Even when I don't like what it says, even when I disagree with it, even when it hurts and even when it's uncomfortable and even when I get confused by it. This Bible is genuine and it's true. And my hope is, my hope, my hope, my prayer is that maybe just a little bit of what I've said here today would inspire you to spend your life on an adventure with God in your Bibles. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, so we've covered a lot of ground here and I, I just... Um, I just pray for anybody here who's frustrated with the scriptures or maybe they're feeling confused by it or it's like maybe out of reach. I pray that, that God, you would draw us back into your word. And for those of us who've been, been neglecting our, our Bible time, I pray that you would help us to rediscipline ourselves, to lock in and get our food for the day, to get our word from you, our promises, our, our treasures, our truth. I pray, Lord, that you would help us become excellent students of your word, but that the, the studious part would then translate into action in real life. That's the whole goal, not just to know a bunch of stuff, but to actually look like Jesus on the outside. So, Lord, help us get there. We need your grace for that. I thank you, Lord, that your word is useful for every single thing that we can do in our life as a believer. And that if we ever did a good thing, if we ever did a godly thing, or if a fruitful thing happens from our life, it's because somehow, some way, the seed of God's word was planted in our hearts. And so, Lord, plant a harvest of seeds in us as we blast forward from this moment, as we wrestle with this great question. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you. Jesus, you are the king. You are the master, and we thank you that you are the word itself. And we pray all of these things now in your beautiful name. And the whole church said a resounding amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody.